verses 12 to 17 today. And if you're using the Bibles in the seats, that's on page 800, I believe, in most of those Bibles. sure this is on yes so we're beginning a new sermon series today we're uh, going to put the book of acts on hold last sunday we finished the did i just sorry testing looks good um so we just finished last week the first three of the six panels or sections of the book of acts And um, I'm open to input. Tell me what you think about whether we should come back to Acts later in the spring. But for the next eight weeks, for sure, we're going to be taking a break and we're going to be talking about transformation. Transformation is the key to our vision as a church, right? Can can anyone, does anyone have memorized our, our vision that can say it with me? We want to be transformed by God for love and for mission in a changing world. But here's the question. How do we get transformed? How does it actually happen? Our our purpose as individuals and as a church is to grow to be more like Jesus. To grow to have his convictions. To have Jesus' character. To have Jesus' competencies, right? We saw those three, three things several weeks back. But how do we grow to be like that? How are we transformed? What are the nuts and bolts? How does it all work out in daily life? That's what we want to look at in this series and what we want to practice together over the coming eight weeks. And I figured Lent was a great time to do this. Not all of us observe Lent. Some of us do. But what better time to lean into Jesus and into becoming more like Jesus and to practicing some of the spiritual disciplines which will help us to do that. Lent begins, is it this Wednesday or next Wednesday? Next Wednesday. So two quick notes as we get started with this series, and these are important. The first important note is that transformation absolutely requires community. For the very simple reason that the most aspect of transformation is growing in love, and you can't love all by yourself. So you can't get very far at becoming Jesus all by yourself any more than you can play ping pong all by yourself. It it just doesn't work. You need at least one other person to play. That's why we've developed sermon groups for these uh, next number of weeks that we'll be meeting together. And if you aren't able to join one over these weeks for whatever reason, I encourage you to at least find one or two other people on your own chat with them about the sermon, um, tell them what you're planning to do about it, ask them how it's going, let them ask you, pray for one another. And by the way, if you'd like to be in a sermon group and you're not in one yet, and you'll be around for at least five or six of the next eight weeks, see me right afterwards and we'll we'll get you in a group. Some of those groups are meeting this morning, one of them's going to be meeting on Wednesday evenings. Community is so key to transformation. If for no other reason that we, the only way to practice patience and forgiveness and kindness is to have people annoy us. And if there's nobody to annoy us, we don't get to practice these things. But hopefully community is better than just that. 
so here's the second quick note as we get started. Second important note. And that is that transformation is initiated by God, not by us. God starts our transformation. God leads it. And our part is to cooperate and to participate. It does take effort on our part, but we're not in the driver's seat. Um, So given that God initiates and guides our transformation, given that God has plans for each of us as well as for us together for our growth, Let me give you an overview of how we're going to look at the transformation process during this series. If we could put that slide up. It begins with recognizing our identity. Knowing who we are. Knowing who God has made us to be. And so we're going to spend two weeks in this passage in Romans 8. Remembering and discovering afresh who God has made us to be in Christ. We're going to be looking at our identity. And then second... Transformation requires sensitivity. Eyes open, ears alert, spiritual antenna up so that we're led by God, so that we're paying attention to his promptings, his convictings. If God is leading the process, then we're going to have to tune in because this isn't a self-help, do-it-yourself project. It's God's work. And God already has a plan for us. And so our job is is to tune into that plan and to let God lead us step by step. We'll spend two weeks focusing on growing our sensitivity. So first identity, then sensitivity, and then third is training. Transformation isn't just about trying harder to become a different person or a better person, but it does involve training. It does involve discipline. It does involve effort. And so for these two weeks, we'll be looking at the kind of effort that it takes to participate with God in the transformation process. And and then fourth, finally, perseverance. We'll spend the last two weeks focusing on the fact that this is a lifelong journey and we've got to stick with it. It's not just about beginning well, it's about finishing well. We've got to work the plan, we've got to stay in the game, we've got to keep putting one foot in front of another through good times and bad. So that's our basic outline. You can take that down now that we'll be looking at over the next eight weeks. So let's right now dig in to where we're going to begin, which is identity. How many of you have seen the latest Star Wars movie? A lot of people saw it over the Christmas holidays. The heroine is a young woman named Ray, who grew up as an orphan. She grew up as a, as a scavenger in the desert. And part of what drives the whole uh, last three Star Wars movies along is Rey's deep thirst to find her identity and to figure out who she really is. Is she just a castaway, just an unwanted child of junkers and nobodies in the desert? Or is she something more? She has uncanny abilities that she can't fully explain. She has vague memories of, of loving parents leaving her. Is there more to who she is? Could she be the lost child of someone who loves her or loved her, who's maybe coming back for her? Someone who's important even, a Jedi Knight perhaps. Who is she? We all want to know who we are, right? 
And, and as Ray's identity becomes clearer to her bit by bit, even before she finds out the truth about her parents, as she refuses to believe that she's just an orphan castaway, an, an urchin and a scavenger, as she comes to realize that she's somebody, that she has a purpose in the universe, it makes a difference in how she lives her life and the choices that she makes. Her growing identity gives her purpose, it gives her courage, it gives her strength, and our identity makes a huge difference in how we see ourselves and how we live our lives and the decisions we make. So who are we? Who are you? Who are you? Are you just the child of middle class or working class parents or immigrant parents destined to hopefully get a secure job in America and live a comfortable life in the suburbs? You know, uh, hopefully raising a family with two plus kids and a dog. Is that who you are? (laughs) Some people are like, scratch the dog. Um, Who we are, our identity makes a big difference in how we live and who we become. I've told the story before of of Marty Johnson, who grew up as an African-American living an unremarkable life in Minneapolis. He was adopted when he was very young. And later in life, he started digging around for his biological roots, and he found out to his surprise that he was part of a noble and prestigious Nigerian family. Not only that, but he was next in line to inherit the position of chief in his home village in Nigeria. He had a living father who was the current chief. He had numerous brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins. And you can imagine that finding this identity was a shock, but it also changed his life. Because here's the thing. We tend to act out of who we are. We tend to act out of our identity. As Queen Mary of England used to tell her son, the future King George the sixth before public events when he was a young boy, she'd say, Bertie, never forget who you are. He, he was the royal prince and she wanted him to behave accordingly. Never forget who you are. Our passage this morning tells us who we are if we're followers of Jesus Christ. In it, we're reminded of our identity. And in it, we find that we have an amazing identity given to us as an amazing gift. You know, so many people today don't know who they are. And so they attempt to construct an identity, maybe using Facebook or Instagram. And and so they, they feel the pressure to just pick the right photos to post and to like just the right memes and the right videos to construct, to create an identity. The only problem is it isn't real And it begins to vanish like a wisp as soon as they put their phone down. But we've been given an identity which is so much more solid and lasting and real and wonderful. So let's look at Romans 8 because um, it tells us about our identity. And before it tells us who we are, though, it tells us who we are not. Verse 15. We are not slaves. We are not slaves depending on your translation, to the sinful nature, or or I think a better translation, verse 12, to the flesh. We are not slaves to the flesh. 
That's the actual word Paul uses here. And if you go back to Romans 6 and 7, you see that that Paul says there um, that we used to be slaves to the flesh. And that that slavery took two forms. There are two aspects to the flesh. One is sin. The flesh leads us to sin, right? No surprise there. But the second aspect, surprisingly, Paul says, is the law. It's God's Old Testament commands. The flesh tries through willpower, through religious self-effort, to be good, to be worthy, to live up to God's moral commands. And, And so these two, sin and law, they work together like two schoolyard bullies to gang up on us, one pushing us into the other, and then the other shoving us back into the first. Or like the good angel and the bad angel, right, on, on each, the devil on the, each shoulder, each whispering in our ears. The law says, shape up, try harder, you should be good. And sin says, you know you don't want to, right? Maybe later, but not right now. Let's do this first. You can, you can get back to being good later. And then the law scolds, why did you do that? That was wrong. You're bad. And on and on it goes. And so the result is what Paul famously describes in, in Romans seven eighteen and 19. It was alluded to earlier in the service. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. We all know this experience, right? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that to that person. I shouldn't have lost my temper. Or I I shouldn't have eaten that. I shouldn't have had that drink. Or I shouldn't have looked at that. Or I shouldn't have done that with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I know it was wrong, but it was so hard not to. Right? That's the slavery that Paul is talking about. But the good news Paul is sharing is that Christ has brought that slavery to an end. That's why we can be transformed. And in describing this for us, Paul's most likely alluding to the story of Moses and the exodus from Egypt and from slavery there. And Paul is saying that through Christ, God has led us on the ultimate exodus. God has set us free from slavery so that we can live in the glorious freedom of God's children. We are no longer slaves So when we think about transformation, when we think about growing to be more like Jesus in our convictions, in our competencies, and especially in our character, being freed from slavery to the flesh makes all the difference. Now, it doesn't mean, or or rather, what it does mean is that we don't have to sin. We don't have to sin. We don't have to do what's wrong. We're free to do what's right. Do you realize when you decide to become a follower of Christ, Christ sets you free from slavery to the flesh? Are you living out of that identity, that new identity? You are not a slave. You are free. You're free from the flesh's power. You're free to do what's right. Now, for sure, we still feel the pull of sin. We, we still may feel tempted to do what's wrong. It may feel loud. It may feel strong in our hearts. But now we do have a choice. We don't have to give in to temptation. 
Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? Are you living into that new identity? Let me try to give you just a simple example of this, which I think most of you will relate to. Have you ever found yourself picking up your phone and then wondering, why did I just pick this up? (laughs) I, I don't need to do anything on my phone. I didn't mean to pick it up it's just a habit or it's just an instinct or or it's just an addiction (laughs) do you know there are a lot of people very smart people spending millions of dollars studying how to keep you picking up your phone to make you addicted to it in fact some of the ceos of these big tech companies won't let their children have phones because they know what they're what they're doing i can look that up for you i think tim cook is one of them bill gates and, and here's what I find in the evening, especially after a hard day. I'm tired. Maybe I'm a little discouraged sometimes. And I find myself craving something to make me feel a little bit better. A, a little bit of something to bring me some pleasure. Uh, it could be a salty snack. It could be something sweet. It could be, you know, picking up my phone and checking it, looking for those little red dots that I got a, a notification Psychologists tell us that that what I'm wanting at that moment is a hit of dopamine. Dopamine is a brain chemical which makes us feel pleasure. Paul would say it's a desire of the flesh. Not not that a late night snack or, or checking your phone is sinful in itself, but it's an example of the flesh wanting something, the flesh desiring to control me. And the more I give into it, the less able I am to not give into it. The harder it is to say no when I should be saying no. And so the more control the flesh gets over me. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, like the children of Israel, like they were powerfully redeemed from slavery to Egypt, like that redemption, so Christ, by coming into our lives, has powerfully set us free from slavery to the flesh. Something has changed in me. I don't have to go along with the flesh. I'm free to say no. So, so picture me wanting that dopamine fix and my, my hand starts automatically almost to go to my phone or my mind starts to go to the kitchen cabinets. What might be in there that will, will make me feel good? And let's say I want to resist these urges, that that they're not leading me to healthy places, and I want to choose to do something more healthy with my time, like read a book, or exercise, or pray, or chat with my wife, or go interact with my kids if I can get them off their phones. Actually, most of them don't have phones yet, but uh, anyway, um, they get sucked into screens too, And, and but Anyway, that choice at that moment is hard because my flesh wants the dopamine hit. And and so I've got to remind myself of my identity, of who I am, or in this case, who I'm not. I am not a slave. I'm not a slave to my flesh. I've been set free by Christ. I can ignore what my flesh is telling me to do because the flesh no longer has authority to make me do it. I'm not its slave anymore. I can say to my flesh, nah, 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 you can't make me. (laughs) Practice that right now because you're going to need that (laughs) by the end of the day. 
na 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 you can't make me <laughs> now I, I realize that this is a simple example and that saying no is not always so easy but but here's the point if if we're going to be transformed one little choice at a time we're going to have to remember our identity we're going to have to remember who we are and if we're a follower of christ we are not slaves we are not slaves to the flesh we're free we have choices because christ has set us free to choose well after our passage tells us who we are not it then tells us who we are if we follow Christ. And what it tells us is absolutely amazing and wonderful. We are adopted children of the King. Some of the translations don't use the word adoption. Others do. That, that, is, that is the meaning of, of that phrase. Some translations talk about being sons, sons and daughters. Adopted to sonship. That's what the, the, the Greek word that's being translated there means. Back in Paul's day, much like today, birth rates were falling precipitously uh, in, in the Roman Empire, especially among the wealthy and the powerful. And what this meant back then was that there were uh, men of high status who had no son, who had no male heir to inherit their vast estate and to carry on their family legacy that they've worked so hard to develop for themselves. And it was very patriarchal in that culture at that time. And so son inherited from father. And so it was common for such a man, often very late in life, to adopt a younger adult male. Someone who he would trust and even groom to worthily inherit and carry on his legacy. Sometimes this would even be a favorite slave. Often, since there weren't enough high-class men, it would be someone of a lower class. It was someone that the older man felt would, would do him honor and would steward well his legacy. Now, think of this from the perspective of the young man who's being offered the deal of a lifetime. Right? Craig Keener, who wrote the Bible background commentary, says this about adoption in, in the days that Paul was writing. Adoption canceled all previous debts and relationships, defining the new son wholly in terms of his new relationship with his father, whose heir he thus became. Adoption cancels all previous debts and relationships. Can you imagine? You're a slave. You're someone of lower status. Maybe you're in debt. And a rich, high-born aristocrat adopts you as his son and heir. Now you are rich. Now all your debts are canceled or paid off. Now whatever reputation you had is swallowed up by a new reputation, a new status, a new identity. You're now the legal son of this great man. Adoption changes everything. With it comes amazing privileges. And also with it comes new responsibilities. Mainly in that culture, it was the responsibility to maintain the estate, to maintain the honor and the status of your new family and its name. A fam famous example of, of this sort of adoption is Julius Caesar. He died early, probably in ninth grade. You, you read the play. 
Um, he's assassinated by Brutus and Mark Anthony, etc. So he dies without any legitimate heirs. He has no legitimate sons. But in his will, he's had the foresight to name someone, his grandnephew, Gaius Octavius, to be his adopted son and principal heir. And so suddenly, Octavius, who at this point lived in relative obscurity, now owns most of Julius Caesar's estate and is Caesar's legal son and goes about solidifying control over Rome and establishing the vast Roman Empire. And he has a new name now, Gaius Julius Caesar, though we know him better by his later title, Caesar Augustus. And so begins a practice where the way most Caesars chose their successors to the throne was by adopting the one they wanted to replace them on the throne. So against that backdrop, listen to your identity. Listen to what Paul says of us. And this is as true of women as it is of men. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. If you're a follower of Christ, do you realize who you are? You have been adopted by God the Father. You have been adopted into a royal family. Your old debts don't matter anymore. They've been paid off. Your old relationships are of secondary importance. You are now a royal son, a royal daughter. That's your identity. And so God's kingdom, God's name, God's honor now belong to you and they are your primary responsibility. So to be transformed more like Christ, more like your heavenly father, begins by living out more and more who you really are. It begins with knowing your identity. So question, how do you live? How do you live? Do you live like you're a slave to the flesh? Or do you live like you've been set free, like you've been adopted as a member of God's royal family? One of God's own royal sons and daughters and heir to God's kingdom, God's wealth. Our transformation begins by knowing who we are. As J.I. Packer, that famous theologian puts it in his classic book, Knowing God. Children must show the family likeness in their conduct to behave in public in a way that is a credit to their father. Further, in this world, royal children have to undergo extra training and discipline, which other children escape in order to fit royal children for their high destiny. It's the same with the children of the King of Kings. Well, guess what? We are certainly not on our own to learn and to figure out how to live like princes and princesses. No, our Heavenly Father Himself, Paul says, comes very close to lovingly help us. He's given us His own Spirit, verse 15. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We're royal children. Paul will go on in Romans 8 to say that we're going to inherit the whole creation. 
But right now, we're still growing up. We're still in the process of being transformed. And God has given us his own spirit put right inside of us to help us know who we are and how to live accordingly. Not a spirit of slavery, not a spirit of fear, Paul says, but a spirit who causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. What's that about? What what does Abba even mean? Well, you might know that it's an Aramaic word. It means Papa. It's an intimate word. But why not trans, or rather, um, yeah, why not translate it then? Why does Paul write it to the Romans in Aramaic? Because the Romans don't speak Aramaic. They speak Greek and Latin. Why leave it in Aramaic? Why throw in a foreign language word in the middle of Paul's Greek letter? I'll tell you why, because there's only one other place in Scripture that we find the word Abba left in Aramaic. Besides Galatians, where Paul does the same thing that he's doing here, referring back to this other place. The one other place that we find the word Abba is on the lips of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, talking to his Father. Abba is Jesus' word for the Father. Abba is what the Son of God calls the Father. So do you realize what it means when the Spirit of God comes into our life and enables us to call God Abba? It means that the Spirit is inviting us into the same relationship with the Father that Jesus has with the Father. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus' Abba Father is our Abba Father. In other words, get this, Jesus' relationship with the Father has become our relationship with the Father too. We get to share in the same relationship with the Father that Jesus enjoys with the Father. Is that amazing or what? We've been adopted. We're part of the family now, just like Jesus is. I love the way Richard Foster put it in his his famous book on prayer. He says, the Father's heart is open wide, and you are welcome to come in. The Father's heart is open wide, and you are welcome to come in. That's what adoption means. So as we close, do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? Knowing who you are, it changes how we live. It changes the decisions we make and it changes what motivates us. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a new identity. Are you aware of it? Do you remember it? You've been set free from the flesh. You've been adopted as God's children. You've been invited through the Spirit into the family, into the relationship that God's own son has with his father. That's why transformation is the only logical purpose of your life and of my life. If you're a royal children, a child beloved by your father, belonging to his family and his kingdom, then the only logical purpose of your life is to become more like you, more like who you are. More like your new family. More like your older brother Christ who shows us perfectly how royal children act and behave and live.
It's to become, our purpose is to become more like Christ's character, to become more like Christ in his convictions, to become more like Christ in his competencies. And transformation begins by knowing our identity. It begins by knowing who we are. So as we close, if you want to better recognize your identity, to more experience freedom, to more experience what it means to be a son or daughter of a God who loves you dearly, not like our human fathers who sometimes left us very bad examples of what a father's supposed to be. Your heavenly father is the father you wish you had, not the father maybe that you had. If you want prayer about any of that, the prayer team is available for you after the service. And for those of you in groups, transformation groups, you'll have a chance to process this together and lean into your identity in those groups.